welcome to Risk Roundup. Global supply chains are going through a rare and gigantic shock due to COVID-19 pandemic. So as we evaluate the impact of our independent and interdependent risk, it is crucial to begin a discussion on how to make the supply chain more shockproof for the coming tomorrow. To discuss the need to design smarter, stronger, and sustainable supply chains post COVID-19, I'm delighted to welcome Professor Kevin Dooley to this roundup. Professor Dr. Kevin J. Dooley is a distinguished professor of supply chain management in the W.P. Carey School of Business at Arizona State University. He's also chief scientist of the Sustainability Consortium and a senior sustainability scientist in the Julie and Wrigley Global Institute of Sustainability. His current research addresses complexity science, sustainable supply chains, and innovation. He's based in the United States. Welcome, Professor Dooley. We're honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to talk to you and your audience. Wonderful, Professor. So as countries go through COVID-19-driven shocks to its systems, what surprised you the most about the way supply chains got impacted? Well, as a supply chain discipline, both in practice and in the classroom, uh, we talk a lot about supply chain disruptions. And because we experience them all the time, you know, throughout our modern history, whether they be from an extreme weather event or a labor strike, um, whether the, so whether the cause is physical or social or socio-political, um, we understand that uh, supply chain managers will be tasked with managing uh, usually a lack of supply at some position or point in their supply chain. Usually that's a singular event at a singular, you could say a node within the supply network and the concentration is on recovering that node's capability to produce or supply or transport. Um, so it's one issue, maybe it lasts hours or days or even a couple weeks. You know, we saw, for example, with um, the, uh, the hurricane um, going through Puerto Rico that we discovered that in fact, the, the US medical system depended on production from Puerto Rico for, for PEP, for, for medical uh, um, textiles. And uh, it took us a while to recover that capability in Puerto Rico and also establish other means you know, outside of Puerto Rico to meet that short-term demand. But usually it's a single place for a finite period of time, and usually it's about the supply being taken away. What we have that's different with COVID is not only does the supply being taken away, but the production capacity itself, as well as the downstream distribution and consumer markets are also affected. So we have this simultaneous disruption of many points in the supply network. Um, they're facing different risks. In some cases, it's literally a lack of supply. In other cases, we actually have excess supply, right? Because of, of, um, of demand shifting from one channel to another. Uh, and we also have the fact that um, uh, people, whether they be workers or managers or customers, um, have also altered their behavior. And so it's, it's the concurrency and simultaneity and, and breadth of all the disruptions occurring at once that makes this 
something that is unique compared to what supply chain managers have, have dealt with before. Very true. No, I think you made some excellent points. And uh, for any nation to operate effectively, all its components need to operate effectively as well. And that means supply chains of governments, industries, organizations, businesses, and individuals, all they all have to work smoothly. Now, it is not just one supply chain we are talking about. It is many supply chains for any individual nation. And similarly, any individual industry, business, and so on. So do you think the supply chains they talk to each other, how do they operate amidst all the interconnectedness and interdependencies? Because you know, any business or any industry or any nation, they have so many interconnected interdependencies within the nation and outside the nation. Same for within an enterprise, outside an enterprise. So the, were they able to have any visibility of their you know, gaps or interconnectedness or you know, interdependencies? And, in any event, any natural or man-made disaster, where they could be impacted, do we have sufficient understanding and intelligence about this? Uh, a couple different answers to that wonderful question. You know, at a, at a very basic level, um, we have handed over much of our inventory management, so the, the management of supply and demand to computers. And really until those computer algorithms actually see a change, they don't do anything they don't react right if our if our erp systems could read the newspaper that we do <laughs> they they could act more you know uh, more predictively and and think ahead but really because of that automation of supply and demand often it's really only a visibility from a buyer and a seller you know within that larger supply network even when you try to figure out let's say you're a food manufacturer and you're trying to figure out where your grains are coming from or where your tomatoes are being you know, grown. It is very, very difficult um, because still our traceability in supply chains is, is so very limited. But the other dimension of this is that uh, we have specialized and optimized these supply chains, just like economics tells us, right? Specialization is is part of our the way that we grow our economy that we get better and better and that has that happens in supply chains too so the supply chain for the paper towels to the restaurant and the hotel industry is a different supply chain than the for paper towels to your grocery store so this displaced demand that we saw between b2c and b2b channels was a lot of the reason why we had excess food we had enough paper towels for everyone, but they were in the wrong channel. And because we've optimized those B2B and B2C channels separately, they, they didn't talk. I mean, it drove me crazy to see that, that warehouse of, I don't know what there were, millions of potatoes just sitting there. And we have food hunger all across the you know, country. Of, we have an increase in demand from food shelves, and yet we couldn't get those potatoes in the warehouse to food shelves or to other productive means. And that's because we've optimized these supply chains uh, for their particular purpose. You know, I'll give you a, an example that, that I haven't seen talked about, but is exactly the same. You know, in most municipalities, the companies that collect your garbage and recycling, um, let's say for your home residences, um, maybe are a different company. Often that's a city, and then you have a different company that picks up the commercial waste. All that commercial waste and recycling, it's not being generated in those commercial buildings anymore. 
And so those, those haulers are starving for garbage and recycling because it's not being created in the businesses they have contracts for. And it's all shifted to the home where the city responsible for garbage and recycling, you know, is overloaded now with materials simply because that waste is being created in the home space. Yes, yes, no, you're, that is absolutely, you know, true. And I have, you know, had several discussions on the agriculture and food industry. So what you are saying, you know, makes come perfect, you know, sense. And especially when we, as the world, you know, all the nations, we all have dependent, uh, depended on China as our manufacturing facility. We have depended on India as our pharmacy. And same way, you know, the world is de it depends on us for the, you know, food. Uh, agriculture industry. So there are, you know, such centralization of, you know, different uh, activities like, you know, manufacturing and pharmacy and uh, food production. That centralization is also a huge risk factor when, you know, there is a man-made or natural disaster because if if United States goes through some kind of crisis, then the whole world will go hungry because, you know, the food supply will stop. So that is a huge critical risk. In the same way, you know, if India's, India goes down, you know, if for whatever reason, natural man-made disaster, then the pharmacy, you know, the, for us, our ability to get the medicine, the pharmaceuticals, you know, industry depends on them heavily. So that would, you know, uh, stop. And, you know, same way for manufacturing as we have seen with China, because more, so many industries and so many businesses, uh, manufacturing plants were located in Wuhan, China. And we all, you know, saw the impact of it, that personally protective, you know, equipment to many medical supplies. We were not able to get that, you know, when the pandemic uh, emerged and, you know, when the world went into shutdown. So this centralization, the desire and, you know, for every country to depend on just one country for their, you know, needs on any particular industry, that is a huge security risk, you know, for the humanity. So as we move forward, are we still going to, even though we have experienced this, you know, shock of decentralization, are nations still going to depend on the centralization, you know, concept of their supply chains or are we going to decentralize? Is there any discussion going on in this direction? I'd say there's debate, right? So I think that, some people believe that this will lead and maybe should lead to more uh, onshoring, you know, reshoring of activities that now are part of a global supply chain. Um, I believe that's the same risk, quite honestly. If you centralize your production capacity in China or India or in the US, you still have the lack of redundancy. So I do see, you know, in, in, in my networks that there are both manufacturers and retailers who are having discussions about reshoring activities, but these began due to the tariffs. Um, and I think that if, if we see change in taking operations or sourcing out of China or India or other global locations, it will be primarily economically driven. I would hate to think that someone would pursue a reshoring strategy and then still not develop redundancy. So um, to me, I'm, uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm old fashioned, I have enough gray hair to, 
um, be proud to, to say I'm still a globalist <laughs> and that I think that um, in the end, the benefits that we all get from all of society and all of the globe doing well um, are our best path forward. Um, but that said, with both tariffs and, you know, we're not even at the point where global transportation has been impacted by our carbon tax. You know, and again, if you go back to kind of economics being perhaps a stronger driver in the end than emotions uh, or, or political leanings, that, you know, not if, but when we have some form of a carbon tax, then obviously global transportation um, is really going to become under strain because, you know, the margins are just going to be taken right away uh, from those, from that transportation hit to your carbon footprint. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. I hear your point. And, you know, we want to ensure that uh, the, all the countries, all nations, the entire world, you know, has developed sustainability and that, you know, security, because it is not about one country. You know, we are not, human species is not just made of, you know, living in just one nation. We are, you know, living in all countries. So we have to make sure that whatever changes we bring are sustainable, that they create, you know, uh, safety, security, and sustainability for every country. And that has to be at the core of all the, you know, changes that we are promoting or we are uh, trying to uh, bring forward. And that especially, you know, when we are when we are looking at, you know, discussions going on, like you said, about the nearshoring or, you know, onshore that we need to have everything in our country, that itself is a risk because, you yeah. know, if we have everything in our country, then uh, if something happens to you know our country or certain locations of our country i mean right now we are fighting about different countries then we'll be fighting about different states so yeah. fighting will continue so we have to make sure that we come up with a strategy that we have you know diverse you know sources if one supply chain you know fails then we can depend on another supply chain and we have to make manufacturing and production in such a way that they can you know take up the increased you know uh, production capacity needs when the you know need arises so there are ways to you know go forward we don't need to shut out any country because we want every country to progress and we want every country to succeed but at the same time we are what witnessing is that you know there are a lot of challenges in the current supply chain and that's mainly because you know the supply chain all the countries have not uh, advanced you know in their processes in their technology you know, at, at the same, you know, level. So for, for instance, you know, digitization, that gives us a capability to see a clear view about, you know, where our supplies are coming from, where are the different, you know, choke points, where are the interconnected interdependencies. And if something happens in one, you know, uh, region or one, you know, a state or city, where else you can quickly move this, you know, uh, your requirements. So those kind of, that kind of visibility we still don't have because we haven't, you know, digitized everything. And right. even today, if you look at the trade, we are still reliant on paper-based processes, the bill of lading and, you know, <laughs> ships, cargo and all that. So we still need paper copies for all of that. And yeah. in many cases, you know, uh, physical paper copies are required by law. So uh, until and unless everything, you know, everyone develops their processes and, you know, at the same level and, you know, they, we cannot achieve what we need to achieve. So what, where do you see 
that we need to focus more to digitize the supply chain and where are the you know gaps other than these of course you know bill of lading that i talked about that if we talk about our country where do you see that we still are facing challenges that we need to work on well i'm optimistic because we have spent um, the last 20 years digitizing each company's own operations right and if you think about the pervasiveness of which we have how we've digitized that workplace no matter pick any workplace right we didn't concentrate on the supply chain that's the next step right so i think that we're going to see a level of automation ai um, we use the um, the term internet edge to represent uh, kind of the the connection between the the physical world of supply chain and logistics and the internet um, you know intel told us that a a truck tire can generate 10 megabits of data about its physical state and the forces that it's encountering every minute 10 megabits a minute you're not going to send that data back to a central processor and make sense of it or make decisions with it right and so now the concentration is how can we use big data kind of at the spot of action in that case you've got four or six or eight truck tires that are generating data about whether they should be changed whether about they're about to you're about to have a flat tire um, you have to make decisions at that truck site you know and then figure out what data you need to synthesize to then send back to central for kind of your your knowledge repository and so on. So I do think we're going to see in the next 10 years incredible technological breakthroughs specifically at uh, in the area of logistics and supply chain that bring digitization there and of course you know um, the truck driver themselves is is one obvious um, uh, let's say both opportunity and risk depending on which side you're on. Um, you have you know, right now in controlled environments like seaports or airports, where there's limited uh, kind of involvement of kind of everyday citizens, everyday people kind of getting into that space and, and making it risky. You know, you have in an airport, you have you, you can make every uh, vehicle intelligent um, and you could automate away all of those, quote, driver jobs. I'm not saying that's good. But when the economics and technology is there, that's what will happen. So we'll see, perhaps we'll see truck driving, you know, um, in the form of platooning as a first step towards delaboring uh, the truck fleet. And so, you know, you'll have a person in the lead truck, but then there'll be several trucks, almost like a train behind them, and they won't have a driver in them. And they'll be using automation to kind of literally follow the lead truck that's being probably not even controlled but at least for legal purposes you know operated by a human yes yes no i, I hear your point and that point you made about the need for you know sent, uh, sending the data back for processing you know to the centralized servers and all that creates complex challenges but i think yeah. we are making a lot of technological advances so we will be able to process all the data right there you know where it's generated so we won't be able we won't need to send the data back and forth uh, right. and that would take up a lot of capacity so those advances we'll see in the coming years and we we have you know 
made significant advances in the development of technology. So that problem should be solved. But if you see most digital communication in the supply chain, it uh, happens still, you know, I think uh, using electronic data interchange and access spreadsheet. So when we pass it back and forth between two parties in the supply chain ecosystem, the data privacy is also, you know, uh, becoming an issue and it's easily, I mean, it is easily controllable and not a concern uh, in many places. Uh, but still, the, when the data in this communication needs to be distributed to more parties, can the traditional supply chain systems, which are centralized, grant independent and auditable, secured access to control to everyone involved, that also becomes a you know, growing concern. Because if it's one or two parties involved, then you can limit the risk, you can limit the security risk, you can limit the privacy and uh, all the audit needs and all that. But when it becomes, you know, in a global supply chain, there are many, many players involved in one single supply chain. So that that's where, you know, we see the growing challenges. Where do you see, how do you see this being solved in the coming years, you know, so that we can give this access to everyone, access to, you know, in a controlled manner to everyone. Uh, without, you know, having security concerns. So um, if I can go back briefly to the, the previous question about um, kind of digitization of the supply chain, and then I'll answer the, the security angle. Um, I look at uh, kind of a three-step evolutionary process. Um, you first need traceability. So you have to know literally where your stuff has been sourced from. And right now, traceability often exist at a national level, sometimes you know, below that, but, but we need traceability at the actual facility level. I need to know where this polyester cotton you know, was, was harvested from. Um, then second, with, if we have traceability, we need transparency, right? And so we need to understand what are the practices of the suppliers that we're sourcing from, which means they have to collect data and share it. And one of the things we've learned in the sustainability consortium is that there are uh, perceived risks for suppliers, uh, especially in agriculture, where they really believe that that farm level data, you know, is their intellectual property. And if they're gonna share it with downstream producers and retailers, that they should benefit from that sharing of, of data. Um, but transparency isn't even enough. What you really need to develop resiliency and capacity and adaptability is a relationship. And unfortunately, that last part can't really depend a lot on technology other than a cell phone and a, and a, and a <laughs> Skype meeting, right, a Zoom meeting. So we can use technology to really get the full traceability, begin to establish the means by which to create transparency, but supply chain managers and buyers still need to actually have a relationship with the company they're sourcing from in order to kind of co get on the same page and develop a plan. I'll shift to the, the security question. My colleagues at Arizona State um, have done research on this and their conclusion is that many of the security break-ins that we have had, um, stealing credit card numbers you know, from organizations and that type of thing, um, have actually occurred through supply chain intrusions. So I don't worry too much about the temperature data of a, of a pallet of tomatoes, 
you know, being stolen by someone who, who breaks into the blockchain, you know, and, and, and changes the weight or the temperatures that the tomatoes were grown in or, you know, that kind of fraud. Um, in some ways, I think blockchain is an overkill because I don't see a lot of really risk um, at the level of, of those transactions. But those channels can be ways that hackers can get in to the corporate systems and wreak havoc. I believe there was one retailer, large retailer, whose intrusion point was a refrigeration unit. And so the hackers had put software into a small vendor's um, maintenance equipment that did calibration of temperatures of the refrigerators. And so when they plugged in their calibration equipment to the refrigerator, then the, the, the software, uh, the virus, you know, spread throughout the corporate system. And boy, there are so many, if you think about all the ways that we use, think about let's say at an airport or a seaport or a train port, and you've got somebody who has a handheld device, right, who's checking in certain things and it's interacting somehow with something that connects to the larger corporation. Um, I, I'm not a security, IT security expert, but my understanding is that that's a huge risk that we have not systemically dealt with. Yes, yes, no, you're absolutely right. There are a lot of, you know, security risk and um, their industry professionals are still in the process of identifying where they are emerging so that they can focus yeah. on coming up with solutions. So it is still a, you know, ongoing process. But the point you made about uh, traceability and uh, trust and uh, all those things, you know, you're absolutely right about that. You know, the relationship problem that you said that, you know, it is about, it is about trust, right? And how do you establish trust? when you don't know people, you know, that you are dealing with, you know, in a global supply chain. So, I mean, there are a lot of people that says that, you know, blockchain will be able to provide that trust and traceability and trackability, and we'll be able to solve a lot of problems and challenges that we are facing now, because, you know, the, we will be able to see the entire journey of any product or any raw material, and we will know where it goes, who it you know belongs to, and who is, uh, you know, owning that so many risks will be able to resolve but again blockchain it technology itself is still faces a lot of problems and scaling yeah. up is you know uh, one of its biggest problems so unless we are able to scale up in a manner that we can have the entire global you know supply chain on it it is still you know an experiment that is going on and there is a lot that we need to do but digitization of the supply chain uh, is one thing you know we need that you know of course we need to digitize that for our increased visibility but digitization is not going to give us resilience because resilience is entirely whole another you know issue that we are talking about so where do you see the need for transformation to bring resilience because resilience bringing resilience is an entirely different approach it's not about digitization right so um the Sustainability Consortium is uh, releasing a report that we uh, created um, at the request of HSBC, the, the large Asian bank, on climate change, uh, supply chain resilience. Um, so the, the question is timely. You can see that report out here in, in a bit. And uh, we identified that there are two general strategies that a, a buying organization can use to help make its supply chain more resilient. 
Um, one are called one set of strategies are called bridging strategies. This is where literally the buying organization reaches out and establishes that relationship and determines what that supplier needs to become themselves more resilient in their operations and maybe even in their own supply chain. And so this involves, for example, maybe it's co-investment, maybe it's sharing of expertise, maybe at the very basic level, it's that development of a, of a relationship and trust between the leaders of the two organizations. Um, one common thing that we see being applied is supply chain finance, where especially with a large buying organization, they will provide the kind of quick cash payment on goods delivered in a matter of days by using their own credit line and then working with the bank. So in Walmart and HBS, HSBC's case, um, suppliers of Walmart, in this case, they started out with textile suppliers in China um, who meet certain sustainability requirements in terms, including participation in the sustainability index, um, get access to the supply chain financing. So instead of getting paid by, by Walmart in 90 days, um, which can cause a cash flow challenge for a small supplier, um, they get paid three days at Walmart's interest rate, which is of course, you know, minuscule, very, very tiny. The other set of strategies are called buffering strategies, right? So bridging means let's develop, let's reach out and develop the capabilities of our existing suppliers. Buffering strategies acknowledge that, you know, no matter how hard you try, they still might fail. Um, maybe of, of no uh, failing of their own uh, self. And so we need buffers. We need inventory buffers, capacity buffers, cost buffers, time buffers. And these are the traditional kind of inventory management, um, lean manufacturing strategies that we already employ. My concern is that while we know how to create buffers, we know how to create insurance for a supply chain, supply chain managers performance is evaluated on leanness, cost reduction, inventory turns, minimizing holding costs, just-in-time delivery. All these things go counter to creating insurance in your supply chain that uh, that's a cost, you know. We pay for insurance. The reason we pay for insurance is that if we need it, it's there. So it takes time, for example, to set up and qualify, uh, to select and qualify a second supplier, let's say for a particular resource. Maybe you don't even buy anything from that second supplier because your, your first, your original supplier is meeting all your needs. But in order to create a capacity buffer, you reach out and select a second supplier. You set up the relationship, you set up the contracts so that if you need to employ them as capacity, you can. That takes time. Are managers really rewarded for that type of prevention? We know, unfortunately, in many management systems that it's firefighting that is rewarded, not fire prevention. And resilience is about fire prevention. And so these types of, of disruptions and incidents are exactly the time when management and, and boards of directors will invest in risk management. You know, exactly. while the crisis, and after it's gone, and you know that being in the risk management, you know, you can't let an opportunity like this go by because now people are open to prevention. 
Yes. It and might you not be that, a year from now. Yes, you made that excellent point. I mean, bringing resilience is about risk management, right? And unless you understand, you identify all the risks where they are emerging, you yeah. cannot, you know, come up with effective plans to make your systems, you know, resilient or bring resiliency in your initiative. And yes, I mean, we can always, you know, buy purchase insurance policy, but we are just, you know, trying to transfer our risk, but that risk doesn't go away. So it just will keep getting bigger and bigger. And then we are going to, you know, at some point see, you know, system failures because the risk became too big to, you know, be insured. So there is, there's a lot that we need to uh, figure out how to move forward because it's not about independent risk, independent risk. Yes. You know, uh, we can, you know, manage now, what we have been always you know promoting this is that there are two kinds of risk one is independent risk that any organization can manage on its own and there is interconnected interdependent risk where you know any organization even if they try to and have a desire and want to put all the resources to manage the risk they cannot manage because it has interconnected interdependencies and you know it is not entirely within their power to manage those risks but how do we see the way we are managing risk currently. Even organizations, even if their risks are independent, that they can manage on their own, they purchase the policies and they transfer those risks. Yeah. And and uh, there is when you talk about interconnected risk, nobody is bothered about it. Nobody is focused on that. So how when you look at you know the entire risk profile, the interconnected risk in this you know world makes up a significant portion of you know the risk profile and yet we don't have anybody focusing on the interconnectedness and interdependent risk integrated risk and when it comes to independent risk also most of the organizations they purchase insurance policy and they transfer those risks yeah so there, we we have a systemic problem here you know how we manage the risk it's not that we don't understand where the risks are but it's about whether we have a will, we have a desire to manage those risks effectively. And unless we integrate independent risk and you know, organizations accountability to manage those risks, if it's within their power, and the insurance companies decide that if those risks are manageable, we should not you know, issue any policy on that. We are going to keep you know, growing our risk and we are going to bring system failures at some point. And what we have been promoting is that, you know, insurance industry needs to be accountable for ensuring that every organization has effective risk management program in the sense that, you know, if you have a good, you know, program, if you're doing everything you need to do and uh, you uh, need to, uh, you identify all the independent risks that you are identifying, then you have to manage that. We will not issue policy, but for interconnected risk, Insurance industry, you know, should be issuing policy. And I have been promoting that the, unless we have a policy for in integrated risk, interconnected risk, then it's going to be impossible for the, even the insurance industry to survive because it's going to, you know, collapse at some point. The nature of the risk, the interconnected risk emerging, not only from supply chain, but from all kinds of risks that we are seeing even in the cyberspace the insurance industry will not be able to survive. So I have been, you know, promoting this and, you know, preaching this almost, you know, in every episode, you know, since last three and a half years. And I am 
I hope that you know we as an organization organization make a headway in and uh, creating proper education and awareness that there is a need to manage interconnected risk because without that we are not going to be make able to make you know any headway into managing the risk effectively bringing resilience bringing sustainability none of these things would be possible so having said that do you see any you know validity in what we are trying to you know do in this you know ability for the insurance industry to get connected with the interconnected risk you know and manage those risk and issue policies do you see a need for that so we we always you know think about uh, market forces versus policy or governmental or regulatory forces as drivers of change. I think when we created the sustainability consortium, our philosophy was that retailers are the new regulators. That uh, a, a global retailer, a, large, a huge retailer, has more uh, pull um, with their market force incentives. Uh, than any government can. They cross, they cross national lines. They can move much more quickly than government. So I think that the financial industry, both banks and insurance, have already begun an investment for that fact, have already begun to step up to the ESG challenge and understand how they play in this market force realm. And so I would hope, for example, that the systemic risk in certain regions due to uh, sea level rise, you know, and it's not, the, it's not the ocean going up a couple millimeters, you know, over a decade, um, that's the problem. It's the problem that, that that small rise actually makes the floods and the, you know, the extreme weather events and all, all the whatnot worse. And I have been shocked at the, uh, just within the U.S., at the lack of preparation that towns and and counties and states have given to their shorelines. It's really, I mean, we've, we've seen large portions of the Louisiana shoreline just disappear. And there's really been no, there's been no resiliency plan or no relocation plan for the communities that are hit. They're just judged to be small enough and poor enough and nobody really cares. But I think that that's, a, that's an example of a collective risk where a region all of its industries, no matter what industry they're in, um, could be impacted by those particular uh, weather-related risks. And yet, and they call for collective action, right? So if an insurance company, if the insurance industry all of a sudden starts saying, you know, we're not, we're sorry that your house got hit by the latest hurricane, but we're not going to rebuild houses in the Key West because it doesn't make sense to us. To me, and, and because Key West as a collective has not taken the actions to in fact establish resiliency. So, you know, that's just a single example, but I think, I would hope that the insurance companies could use their market power to incentivize those right collectives that are under that collective risk to take the actions they need. Yes, yes. No, I hear your point. And uh, what you said about the regulators and uh, retailers being the regulators, that's very interesting because at the end of the day, we all are accountable for our actions. And if we become accountable and understand, you know, where to regulate ourselves, how to regulate ourselves and how to make sure that we bring 
resiliency and sustainability in our actions and decisions, then I think we won't have to depend on governments, which, you know, anyway, because the process for government to regulate any, any industry or any, you know, uh, technology, it's a long process. And they, the way emerging technologies are advancing so rapidly and the risk that are emerging so rapidly, it's very difficult for governments to, you know, work at the same pace and, you know, come up with effective policies. And a lot of emerging technologies are very complex. So it's going to be interesting to see how the regulation happens. And one thing is that the humans, we are better at, at uh, than any other, you know, life form in our ability to learn from our experiences and implement those learnings to come back stronger. We have been doing that since the beginning of the time. So having said that, what do you think we have learned as a human species and uh, from this COVID-19 pandemic? And do you think we will come back stronger uh, with respect to our supply chains, especially you know, if we talk just from that perspective? I think that we have all collectively learned that humans can change their behavior much more rapidly, broadly, consistently, with sacrifice than we ever thought possible. So, so much of sustainability discussion has always been, well, people won't do X, Y, Z. Well, now we know when pushed up against the wall that people, in fact, will do X, Y, Z. They will radically change. I don't think that those changes, all those changes are gonna be permanent in terms of people's mindsets. We'll get used to the noise again. We'll get used to sitting in an hour and a half of, of traffic, unfortunately. But um, it at least tells us collectively that we have that potential as a human society. Um, in terms of the impact to supply chains, um, I think of this as more of a hiccup um, than, uh, than a change point, because I think the change point to supply chains already started five or, or 10 years ago with the digitization that you're talking about. Um, there may be some short-term uh, nationalism uh, that occurs uh, because of this and, and therefore, you know, talk about taking operations out of countries and stuff. Uh, but again, I think that, the, you know, we have a philosophy in, in the sustainability consortium that we will never write a, a question in one of our assessment surveys that ever suggests that you should desource from a high-risk region. Um, in fact, as a sustainability leader, leaders should stay in the areas that they're sourcing and use their resources to make those sourcing regions better. Whether it's investing in conservation programs to protect their natural resources or investing in you know, worker development and education, whatever it might be that that community needs, if we're, if we're acknowledging a seeding of responsibility in some ways from government to corporations, then corporations also have to have that global perspective and recognize they're only as good as their weakest supply chain link. And, and that's not just whether the factory is, you know, producing its yield. It's like whether that textile factory is polluting the local water source that then is, you know, leading to much lower uh, water quality um, for the local people to access, both the workers in that community and all their families. So it's that type of, again, it's, it's kind of a shared responsibility, as you mentioned, around interconnected risk. Yes, um, no, 
and supply chains show us, you know, most of the world thinks about um, things that are close to one another. So we think about the watershed and the, the lake in the watershed and the animals and the trees and the houses or the businesses that are around the watershed. We manage society locally, but supply chains connect distant places together through economic transactions. So some designer at Procter & Gamble, you know, in an office in Ohio is making a packaging design decision that will impact, let's say, you know, uh, uh, a timber growing region um, in California for the packaging materials and maybe the packaging manufacturers in Mexico. And so, you know, that, that really makes us global too, because um, all these, all these economic transactions at the global level create that interconnectedness that you discuss in terms of both risk and opportunity. Yes, no, I, I agree with you that we have to focus on our collective future because security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. So we we always are, you know, promoting uh, our, you know, focus on our collective future and to protect the future of the humanity. So having said that, what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners and especially the decision makers about your, uh, you know, recommendations about your books or about your, you know, coming initiatives that you think would help, you know, in making, helping them take the right decisions for the coming tomorrow? Well, in, in the field of complexity science, um, that attempts to understand how complex physical social systems change over time and why they change and how they change. Um, the general premise is that, you know, living systems, including social systems, kind of like to be stable. They're not, they're not an equilibrium in the traditional economic sense we define that, but they, they, like, to, they like a norm, they like a routine. Um, because that allows them to optimize in that context. Um, it's when the context, when the outside context changes, that then the system or the organization or the economy is forced to consider how to adapt to that change. And it's at that, the, sometimes you use the phrase, it's not technically correct, but it's, it's a nice phrase, the edge of chaos. So at this edge, um, we call it, technically it's called far from equilibrium when the system is pushed far from that equilibrium spot, that's when the, the flutter of the butterfly's wings, right? And chaos theory could, can cause a, a, a tornado in London. Um, it's when those small perturbations, small changes, small innovations, small experiments can blossom into the next uh, stage of the, the evolution of the system. And we saw with a singular event with George Floyd, you know, here in the U.S., how that singular event, because the system was already at the edge, you know, exploded into a system-wide movement and change. And so for individuals, that means that you, as an individual, in your company, in your supply chain, in your industry sector, you know, in the city that you live in, you and others have that potential as individuals to make, to be the butterfly. Um, and so now's the time to experiment. Now's the time to innovate. Um, you, I think that this COVID has given us um, kind of an organizational security blanket to say, let's try this instead. So that's, that's my message to, 
to your audience is that use this time as an opportunity not to just figure out how to be resilient to the next risk like this that comes, whether it's another pandemic or whether it's something related to climate change or some geopolitical situation. Yes, focus on improving your risk profile, but also use this as uh, opportunity to move and move quickly on other changes that before were just kind of, oh, well, we're, we're not allowed to think about that. We can't do that. I don't think we should say we can't do that at this point. No, I think you gave an excellent advice. So thank you so much, Professor Dooley, thank for you. participating in this roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on impact of COVID-19 on global supply chain and our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from the information you shared today and the recommendations that you have given. And as a result, this risk roundup dialogue has been of service. We thank you for that. Thank you so much and thank you listeners. Wonderful, thank you so much. So Risk Group is a strategic security risk research platform and community and our ecosystem is the first and only cross-disciplinary and collective community that is made of top scientists, security professionals, thought leaders, entrepreneurs, philanthropists, policymakers, and academic institutions from across nations collaborating to research, review, rate, and report strategic security risks to protect the future of humanity. Add your voice to risk groups, get involved to protect the future of humanity. Until next time, I'm Jayshree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.